We're going to um, continue our sermon series in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read to you from John 17. Excuse me while I raise my stand. All right. Um, the passage is verses 9 through 11. Uh, chapter 17, verses 9 through 11, and then verses 22 and 23. I'll read the text for you. This is Jesus' prayer. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. This is the word of God. So I want you to know that this sermon has been growing inside of me for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. And this is something that I have been thinking about as a pastor for a long time. And I told Christina this week that I feel like the sermon is bursting to come out of me. And so I better say it. Here goes. We're looking at John 17 again. And John 17 is Jesus's final prayer. It's actually the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. And in this prayer, Jesus is thinking about and he's praying for the church. And in particular, he's praying for the oneness of the church. He says, Father... May they be one. May they be one. I think this is one of the most profound statements that has ever been made. Because it answers the question, what are human beings made for? And what Jesus is saying in this prayer is that human beings were created. Human beings were created so that they might merge together. So that they would no longer be many, but that they would be one. That's the reason for human existence. We were created for union. Union with God. Union with each other. In deep community in Christ. That's the purpose of our lives. You know, the only other place where the Bible talks about human beings becoming one is when it talks about marriage. Do you guys remember Genesis 2.24? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Just yesterday, I got to witness and participate in a, uh, a Zoom wedding, a virtual wedding, 
our dear sister, Irene Chan, got married with this wonderful godly man, Eric Hong. And uh, it was a beautiful ceremony. But that's what marriage is, right? Marriage is uniting through this ceremony, through marriage, it's uniting two individuals who are living these otherwise separate lives. But now they're fused together. And they share this life together. And they literally move in together. And God willing, they have children together. And so therefore, do you understand the intensity of this language of oneness? And then Jesus has the audacity to apply this same language, the same intensity, the the, the sacredness of oneness, and he applies it to the church. And actually, it's the other way around. It's the church that is the archetype. It is marriage that is the type. It is the echo of this eternal reality that God intended. And in this prayer, he's saying that the oneness of the church reflects the oneness of God himself. It's a profound mystery. We'll get to that later. And he says it is through our oneness that we then fulfill our mission to the world. And it is through our oneness that we experience the love of God. There's so much here to unpack. So here's the outline, three points. Number one, we're going to look at the problem of human disconnection. Number two, we're going to look at the answer of the Bible, which is the answer of enduring community. We're going to look at the doctrine of the church. And then number three, we're going to see how community gives us the love of God. So let's begin. Number one, the problem of disconnection. Look with me to verse nine. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus here very pointedly says, I am not praying for the world. It seems a little rude. Why not leave that unstated? Why make that explicit? And the answer is that Jesus is drawing a contrast. And the contrast is between the oneness of the church on the one hand, and on the other hand, the fractious nature of the world. Because this world, hear me now, which is in rebellion against God, has been fractured by sin. And sin produces conflict, division, disconnection. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, which I recently just reread, it is one of the most brilliant defenses and explanations of the Christian vision of hell. And in this book, it's an allegory. C.S. Lewis, he depicts hell as this gray, drab town, this joyless town. But there are no flames. There's no pitchforks, none of that stuff. But what makes this place hell is all the inhabitants of this town are constantly quarreling with each other. They're perpetually annoying into arguments with each other. And every time they squabble, they move away. And they would build a house further away. And in this world, it takes next to no effort to build a new house. All you have to do is think it, and then a house appears. And so they go through this cycle of conflict and dislocation, conflict and dislocation, again and again, until every, every inhabitant of this town lives miles and miles and miles away from their neighbor, utterly disconnected. 
That's the vision that C.S. Lewis gives us of hell. It's this nightmarish vision. But I think what makes this story absolutely chilling is that I can't think of a better, more accurate description of modern life today. I recently read a book by Sebastian Junger called Tribe. Sebastian Junger is a journalist. He's a veteran war correspondent. He was embedded with combat troops in Afghanistan during the height of the war. He was stationed in the Korangal Valley, which received the highest uh, percentage of firefights and uh, combat. And Sebastian Junger, he starts his book with this simple observation. He says that for soldiers who fought in battle, they very often miss it. And they miss it intensely when they get back home. And he says that on the face of it, that makes no sense at all. Because war is terrible. Sebastian Junger says it is the worst experience you can imagine. You're dug into this outpost on the side of a mountain. There's no running water, no baths. You're filthy. You're wearing the same clothes for months on end. The food is terrible. You're hot. You're sticky. You're miserable. And of course, your life is in constant danger. The platoon station in Korangal Valley was uh, experienced ambush after ambush. You and your fellow soldiers are constantly getting shot at and killed. And so Sebastian Junger says that it is not the case of these soldiers glorifying war. They know better than anyone, war is hell. And yet he says... For these soldiers, the war feels better than the peace. Why is that? And he says the answer is one word. It's brotherhood. He says that when you're at war with your platoon, you experience deep and intense brotherhood. And he says that brotherhood has nothing to do with whether you like someone. You know, in Western culture, friendships is based on personality. It's based on common interests. So that if your personalities click, if you get along with someone, if you like someone, then you hang out with that person. But in war, you don't have that luxury. You're facing this common enemy who is hell-bent on destroying you. And in that situation, everyone in the platoon matters. Everyone has a role to play. And your life literally depends on your fellow soldier watching your back. And the only way you can survive is you have to put the welfare of the group ahead of your own welfare. You have to say, I love my brothers more than I love my own life. And Sebastian Junger says, they do. He saw incredible acts of heroism and self-sacrifice in battle. And he says that they live like that. They live like that for a year. This intense brotherhood where they share everything. Where they're sleeping, he says, virtually on top of each other. In the book, he sort of makes a big deal of this. He says that soldiers, they're sleeping right next to their fellow soldiers, arms touching arms in this sort of cocoon environment. And he says in that environment, they have deep restorative sleep. 
He says, this is the way human beings have lived for centuries in these close-knit tribal societies. And then what happens is that soldiers come home. And when they re-enter society, they experience and they see radical individualism. They enter a world that he describes as cold, technocratic, alienating. He says Western society is where everyone lives these autonomous lives and they are accountable to no one. And he says that's just brutalizing to the human spirit. And for these soldiers, the shock of that experience produces this deep loss and disillusionment. And so Sebastian Junger says, it's not that the soldiers miss the war itself. They miss the brotherhood. I want you to think about that. There is a sickness in our society. So that when some people, when these soldiers get out of it and they experience an alternate reality, they prefer war to peace. And he believes He thinks that this explains the high rates of long-term PTSD that we're seeing in our soldiers today. Which he says is puzzling if you look at the history of the wars that America has fought. Because every war since the Civil War has been less severe. The casualty rates have gone down. The injuries and the... uh, uh, um, The injuries and the... um, the, the, survivals have go- the injuries have gone down, the survival rates have gone up. And yet, he says, PTSD rates have gone steadily up. The numbers are going in the wrong direction. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have one-third the casualties of the Vietnam War, but three times the disability. What is going on? He says it is not the trauma of war itself. He says people have a remarkable ability to heal. But he argues that it's the trauma of Western society. It's the trauma of a culture that prioritizes wealth and career success. And you know, it's largely paid off. We now live in the wealthiest society in human history. There has never been a generation like ours with more stuff, more money, with bigger homes, with longer, more extravagant vacations. But along with that wealth, we have traded away the social bonds that tie us together. In the 1950s, sociologists asked Americans, how many close friends do you have? How many people do you have in your life that you can confide in? that you can share your deepest troubles and thoughts with. And in the 1950s, the average answer was five. Some people had more, some people had less close friends, but the average answer was was five. In the 1980s, that number dropped down to three. And right now, the most common answer given when asked that question is zero. There's a social sickness in our culture. And along with that isolation and disconnection, we are witnessing skyrocketing mental health issues, depression, addictions, suicides. There is now an epidemic of 
suicide and self-harm, particularly among younger people. This is the cost of participating in the modern economy. Because the, mo- the way the modern economy works is that it requires hypermobility. You have to constantly be able to uproot and relocate for school and for work. I remember for Christina and I, there was a, a long stretch of time when we moved literally every three years. It was like clockwork. We would pack up our bags. We, w- we would relocate to a new city every three years. And we would meet new people But, you know, I remember thinking in the back of my mind, yeah, but this is temporary. I'm just passing through. Don't invest too much. And so the cost of all this mobility is that it thins out our relationships. Because relationships take time. It requires massive amounts of investment and energy. And because without commitment, you can't go deep. If you're constantly on the move, you will forever be in the shallows of any relationship. And so what we do then, as modern people, is we compensate with technology. And listen, technology has tremendous upsides. What would we do in this pandemic without the internet? But listen, what technology does is that while it makes relationships more efficient and convenient... It only gives us the illusion of connection because it doesn't cost us anything. This is most obvious in the dating world. Hear me now. Because dating apps make finding someone new so easy, just one click away, it makes people intolerant of the rigors of a real relationship. So that when you discover inevitably someone's flaws and problems, It's so easy, as someone once colorfully told me in church, he said, it's so tempting just to pull the ripcord and parachute out of it. Because there are 10 more potential people out there just waiting to date you. And because technology has trained us to expect these frictionless relationships, we have this new phenomenon, and actually it's not that new, it's now 10 years old, but we have this phenomenon called ghosting. Do you know what ghosting is? Ghosting is when you break up with someone, but you don't even have the decency to inform them. You don't go through the effort to give some kind of explanation or some kind of closure to the matter so that it's frictionless. You just stop returning their phones and texts. You just go silent, and then you cut them out of your life. And because everyone is doing this, because this is now the new norm for ending relationships, it raises the anxiety for everyone. Because you're thinking, before my date ghosts me, maybe I should preemptively ghost him. And that makes all relationships, and I'm not just talking about dating relationships, it makes all relationships more insecure and brittle. Listen, I'm not saying it's wrong to use dating apps but I'm talking about the way these technologies shape us. I want you to know that we live in a deeply lonely world. And other than perhaps your immediate family, you are on your own. And that has created in our culture this pervasive sense of homelessness. We have lost 
our sense that we belong to a people and to a place. And we don't have a tribe anymore who we've committed to and who has committed to us. And I want you to know that in the 12 or so years that I have been a pastor, I believe this is the most pressing issue we face today. And I believe that most of the social ills that we are witnessing now, that we read about in the news, is because of this. It's because we don't have a sense of obligation to each other anymore. We don't have a sense of fellow feeling. And so how do we do church in this context? How do we do church in a culture where relationships are disposable? That leads me to the second point, the doctrine of the church. Here is the mission of the church. In a world where sin separates, the church gathers together. Do you hear me? Let me say it again. In a world where sin separates, the church gathers together. And we have received this mandate from the Lord Jesus. And he imparts it to us by his very life. Look with me to verse 22. Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying that before the church was one, God himself, the triune God, was one. So that from all of eternity, God was a community. Think about that. He was this divine community. He was this community of divine persons. And in that community was perfect, self-giving love. This is, the lo- this is the glory that Jesus had from the beginning. And then he comes down to earth and he communicates that glory to the church. How does he do it? For about a year now, uh, there's a book that David Yee, one of our elders, recommended to me. He's like, you got to read this book. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. I said, okay, I'll read the book. This book blew me away. And the title is a little bit misleading. It's not about evangelism so much. It's really a book about discipleship. And the book begins, if you know David, that's funny. The book begins by saying, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus actually doesn't spend a lot of time giving public speeches. That's rather odd. Because think about it. If you were going to build this massive movement that was going to overtake the Roman Empire, that's the way to do it. And no one could draw a crowd like Jesus. No one. And yet, we see time and time again, Jesus avoids the crowds. Why? If you read the text, the biblical text, the verses will often say Jesus left the crowds so that he could spend time with his disciples. This small band of 12 ordinary men, he concentrates almost all of his time with. Think about that. Jesus is on a mission to save the world. And he spends nearly all of his time just being with his disciples, teaching them, sharing life with them, discipling them. And he does this for three years. Intensive, 
life-on-life discipleship. And then he leaves so that he stakes the kingdom of God in its entirety on these 12 men carrying it on, carrying on the mission. There's a place in the book where Robert Coleman, he has this line that when I read it, it almost knocked me off my seat. He says, for even the Son of God could not accelerate the time that was needed to forge his disciples. Do you understand? Even Jesus Christ could not hurry the time, the process of discipleship making. What does this mean? This means there are no shortcuts to Christian community. Because relationships take time. Because you can't do relationships on the cheap. Because relationships, by their very nature, are inefficient and time-consuming. Because, the only, because you, a lot of time before you can begin to have real moments of connection. And therefore, Christian community is incompatible with the speed and the efficiency of the modern economy. Listen to me. Everything around us trains us to expect immediate results. Immediate results. We have prime shipping. We have microwave dinners. And all of these technologies train us to be intolerant of waiting. And so we want everything instantly. Instantly. Why should we wait? And then we apply that to the church. We want instant community. I can't tell you how many times I have heard people in the church say to me, Pastor Michael, I have been in IGC now for three years, and I still feel so lonely and disconnected. I'm thinking of leaving. And I want to say to them, do you think that spending one to two hours a week on a Sunday, do you think that's enough? That's sufficient to create the deep bonds of Christian community. In reality, it is not. You can't be tumbleweed just passing through the landscape. You have to be an oak tree. You have to sink down your roots deep into the soil. Because church community isn't measured in months or even years. It is measured in decades. And you have to commit to a tribe. You have to say, I love these people more than I love my own life. And then you have to endure disappointments. You know why? Because people are selfish. And you'll sin against people too. And then you have to endure and endure. And you have to be steadfast. And then only then can you harvest, can you reap the fruits, the incredible, beautiful fruits of Christian community. Listen to Paul in Romans 15, verse 5. Listen to this. Paul says, may the God of endurance. Do you hear that? May the God of endurance and encouragement 
grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that's the church you know we live in a deeply consumeristic culture and consumerism says there's something better out there why should you settle for less and so when something gets worn down when something gets old just upgrade to the next model there's something new and shiny out there waiting for you and so we get the next model iPhone we move on to the next job when it gets old we buy ourselves new clothes it's kind of crazy now right but we don't even expect clothes to last very long they're almost disposable what is it called now fast fashion and then i think we apply that mindset to the church and i want to tell you something pastors do that too oh yes pastors do it too can i tell you guys a dirty little secret you know being a pastor is much like any other job so that if you're good at what you do if you have some skill if you have a record of success if your church has a record of numerical growth do you know what happens recruiters call did you guys know there are headhunters for pastors the recruiters will call and he'll say or she'll say are you happy in your church do you think what do you think about moving on to this bigger and better church they're looking for someone just like you and so just to set the record straight in case you're wondering i'm not going anywhere and i got to be honest with you even to say that it's a little bit scary because in the back of my mind you know what i'm thinking yeah but what if things get really bad do i really want to close my options what if this really fantastic opportunity comes along do i really want to close the door to that but listen to me i feel so deeply that god has called me to this place and christina and i have had many discussions about this and we are agreed i have sunk down my roots deep and i'm going to stay and no matter where the road may take us and i have no illusion that there won't be painful seasons ahead just as there have been painful seasons in the past but no matter where the road will take us i will see the adventure to the end and my hope is that i will be buried in this church because you are my people and i'm committed to you and shepherding you to the end let me add two more notes on christian community that we see in the text let me be very brief here cuz we're running out of time number 1 i want you to know that the church shares resources look with me to verse 10 jesus says to the father all my all that are mine are yours and all that are all that is yours is mine and then he applies that to the church everyone who is married is familiar with this language it is the language of intimacy it is the language of shared possessions of a common life 
This is how the early church lived. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, listen to this, were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And if I could extend this principle, this applies not only to money, but also to time. And I think in the Bay Area, time in many ways is more valuable than money. Let me tell you a story. Several years ago, Christina had an accident and she fell pretty hard on her arm. And at first we thought it was okay. But then over time, the pain became worse and worse until it became unbearable. She was in tears. And so we said, okay, we got to go to the ER. But who's going to watch the kids? The kids were already asleep in bed at this time. It was around 11 o'clock. What are we going to do? And so in the middle of the night, I called Hansen and Jomelin. And they dropped everything and they came over right away. And I remember saying to them, listen, I have no idea how long we're going to be gone. You might have to stay here the whole night. And they said to me, we got this. Don't worry about us. Go to the hospital. And so what happened then is, you know, Christina, she had a a fracture in her arm, in her elbow. And so we truly needed to go to the ER. And Postscript, by the way, they did this on two separate occasions. Christina is injury prone. But I have so many stories. I can go on and on of people in the church loving on my family. Countless stories. People cooking meals for us. I can go a year and all the meals that I've been cooked for. People watching our kids so we can go on date nights. I know, I know so many stories in the church of other people doing that to other people in the church. And I love that. That's the church. Do you know what the church is? It's a mutual aid society. No one is on their own. We're all in this together. And so, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Because you know why? You're not burdening them. You're giving them an opportunity to practice community. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Second point. Christian community is a witness to the world. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, I in them and you in me. That's union. That they may become perfectly one. By the way, that's a progressive verb, which means that we realize this oneness more fully over time. So that, Jesus says, the world may know that you sent me. Listen. In a world full of division and strife, Perhaps the greatest testimony that we have is the unity of the church. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Erwin Ince, who wrote a book on the church, several of us on the church leadership have been reading this book. It's called The Beautiful Community. It's a stimulating, it's, it's challenging It is theologically profound. And in the book, he's addressing the racial discord 
that we see in the world, and we're seeing it again in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with the tragic shooting of Jacob Blake and all the violence and all the deaths that have been happening. And Erwin Ince, he has this line, I think it's so beautiful. He says, the unity of the church is a living sign of the gospel to a world that is fractious and dying. I believe that with all of my might. The unity of the church is a witness to the world. But let's talk about what that practically means. Because otherwise it's just meaningless words. How do we maintain unity? How do we, as Jesus says, how, do we, how may we become perfectly one? Here it is. It's, it's going to require regular rhythms of reconciliation and conflict resolution. Because if we get into disagreements and then break apart, if we sin against one another and, st- and then stop talking to each other, the world will say, man, I see that everywhere. You guys are no different than anyone else. There is nothing supernatural about the church. But if the world sees inexplicable grace and forgiveness, if the world sees enduring friendships that survive periods of conflict, then the world will say, surely the love of God is in that place. I want, I want to be honest with you. In all my years as a pastor, I have found that relationships in the church are constantly falling apart. Because the moment you stop investing time and energy in a relationship, from that very moment, the clock starts ticking and it begins to break apart. That's just the nature of relationships in this fallen world. And so, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't say, oh no, why are problems happening? Because conflict is normal. Disagreements are normal. It is unity that is supernatural. It is the spirit of unity working in the hearts of men. That is supernatural. And so the union of the church is not this passive thing. It's not something that you could just coast and then it'll just automatically happen. But listen, unity is effortful. It's an active thing. It is something we have to strive and fight for with all of our might. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 4, 2-4. He says, bear with one another. Do you know what that means? It means endure. He says, bear with one another in love, with all humility and gentleness and patience, eager. That means with all of your might, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, for there is one body in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the doctrine of the church. Let me close, final point, very quickly. I want you to know that community, church community, is where you experience the love of God. Listen, the church is the place where you can know and experience the love of God in its fullness. And I know that it's deeply counterintuitive to modern believers, maybe even offensive. 
Because our modern culture te teaches us that, you know, you can have a relationship with God on your own. But listen again to verse 23. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. We talked about this. That's the witness of the church. And then listen to this. And that you love them even as you love me. Do you hear the logic of that? It's a little bit difficult to pick up because it's separated by quite a bit of words and some clauses. But what Jesus is saying is that the oneness of the church is how we know God loves us. Jesus says, may they become one so that, that's the logical connector, so that they may know that you love them even as you love me. Do you understand, therefore, the centrality of the church in the love of God? On, the, on his last night, in his final prayer, Jesus was praying about the church because he was going to go to the cross and he was going to lay down his life for the church. And so how can you follow Christ apart from Christian community? He died for the church. The church is the body of Christ. And therefore, my dear friends, love the church. Commit to the church. Serve in the church. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging word for our time. And the temptation is to be independent and free because that way we can't get hurt. But that is the path to death. That is the way of sin. Lord, help us to hold on to each other and be generous to each other and forgive one another and reconcile with each other. Not cheap, cheap reconciliation, but deep reconciliation. Let us practice the gospel. Let us remember that you are a triune God. You are a divine community. And you create in this world this new community, a city set apart. And we know that through the church we have union with you. This is a deep and profound thing. We cannot understand it. And it will take a lifetime to unpack it. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of it now today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.